Welcome to SkyCast episode 49, a podcast dedicated to all things The 100. I'm Brittany Perlman. And I'm Sarah McCabe. And today we'll be discussing season 7, episode 6, Nakara. Um, so before we get into <laughs> anything, we have an announcement to make. Which we did over Twitter last week. Um, we got a puppy. We did. The reason why we had to scramble and get last week's episode out so quickly is because we had to take a little mini road trip to go pick up our baby. Yeah. Um, her name is Carew. She is nine weeks old and we are obsessed with her. Yeah, she's the light of our life. Um, <laughs> she's adorable and also still very, very, very young. Um, and very vocal. And very loud. <laughs> so she's taking a nap right now, but be forewarned, there might be a third host on this podcast <laughs> um yeah if she starts barking we're gonna try our best to like edit that out but if it's just like one bark or two i'm just gonna leave it guys because i'm lazy so <laughs> also like it's pretty damn cute it is pretty cute <laughs> and she has us wrapped around her little paws yes she does um so excuse any uh unnor- out of the norm noise yes this, this week so. yes 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 um, and if you want to see more pictures of Karu, we will happily post them on SkyCast. <laughs> you can uh, plug her Instagram. <laughs> oh, yes. You also can follow Karu on Mini Karu. Um, it's M-I-N-I. Karu is spelled K-A-R-O-U. So if you want to see, literally, I post a, I post a photo and a story every day. So it's always being updated with <laughs> new content. <laughs> is that all you post? Do you, like, try to keep it to once a day? If, if I... Um, if I have like a, a plethora of things to, to choose from, I will do more than one, but I try and keep it to one a day. Because she's got her hand glued to her phone whenever Karu's around. Karu um, thinks that the phone is my hand. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah. This is a podcast about the 100. We should talk about that. Okay, all right, all right, I guess. <laughs> How did you feel about this episode? Um,. You know, I like I said on Twitter, for me, this was hands down my favorite episode of the season mm-hmm. so far. Um, it was not perfect, but I think this was the episode where we finally saw a return to those character moments that I've been craving for a while. Um, and so this whole episode felt very character-driven versus plot-driven, which I loved. Yeah, 100%. I agree with you completely. There were, there was a lot of plot, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of info dumping still, but it was justified in the character moments that um, we got out of them. And so, like, I don't mind things being contrived. I don't mind things being expositioned if we get the um reward the satisfaction of of seeing some of these relationships um develop sure i mean what the difference was in this episode was that the plot was there to serve the characters instead of the other way around yes that's Um, true which is something that we've been struggling with this season not necessarily in every scene in every episode but uh, without a lot of episodes this season there's been a little bit too much plot and not enough of our character reactions or emotions that we love so yeah, 100% I love seeing that in this episode so excited to talk about it before we get into the recap though please take a minute and go rate and review us on iTunes it helps other fans of the 100 find us so go do that right now <laughs> thank you thank you um and with that let's jump into the recap yes uh into the best opening scene oh is so good so we finally see what's been happening with Dioza since we last saw her Dioza's been taken by the Bardoans or I guess the disciples but they can't use MCAP on her because she fights the machine so instead they try to break her in other ways but Dioza being Dioza manages to escape in the most badass way possible and it's awesome <laughs> yeah um before we talk about Dioza because I could literally talk about her forever I just uh-huh. wanted to note there was this whole intro um was overlaid with um 
uh, with a song by Interpol that was just really strange. It was a weird choice. Um, just the way that they usually integrate music on this show, it was a big departure from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't not like it. I thought it was very cool. I just didn't feel like it was part of the language of the show that it's been established, but mm-hmm. it was also a really kind of bizarre intro. So I didn't, it didn't bother me. I did also notice the music at the very beginning, which, yeah. you know, like for me, that's showing that something feels a little out of place or at least different than what we've been hearing. But I do think like as the scene went on, I started to understand why they chose that and yeah. it like made more sense to I me. I agree. Um, but guys, like honestly, like de fucking Yoza. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, they actually posted a picture of her and her stunt double um, online and it, I swear, guys, I, like, forget that um, Ivana Milishevich, I think that's how you say it, uh, is not Dioza. Because I'm like, oh, yeah, sh- I guess she's not doing all those stunts herself. But, like, I feel like Ivana truly embodies Dioza so well that I, like, it's not like other characters where I know, like, in my mind, like, of course they're not doing these things. Like, to me, it feels like Ivana is doing these things. <laughs> yeah, no, the... the um the film between actor and character is flimsy uh-huh. with Dioza. Um, <laughs> and I just, I fucking missed her so much. Um, if we didn't already know it, like she is a badass. She, oh She's God. without a doubt the most badass character in this show. Like, do you guys remember the scene in season five when she was pregnant and she still took on like six men by herself? That was awesome, but then this scene just reminded me again, like, we haven't seen her fight like this in a really long time. No. And I was like, damn, Dioza. all these years, like, you'd think she'd be, like, even a little rusty, <laughs> but she is sharp, man. Oh, God, I, I just, I mean, truly, we've said it before, and I'm going to say it again, the only good thing that came out of season five. <laughs> oh, God, it was worth it for her. So worth it. Um, but we see here, so Dioza uses pain to keep them from um, using the MCAT machine on her. Like, she's, like, actively pushing the, like, nodes into her head so, like, she can only focus on that pain and not focus on her memories. And it's just brilliant. Yeah. Um, and definitely seems like a very Dioza thing to do. And I guess also explains, I mean, I was very shocked seeing this, season, or this scene the first time around. Um, because I really did think that she would have been like lobotomized, but that's apparently not at all what happened. They couldn't even use the MCAT machine on her because she was hurting herself. So interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's just a really good reminder that like Dioza's always going to surprise you. Yeah. She's like never, ever going to do the thing that you think is going to happen. Um, and which is why we love her so much. Cause just, she's just so fun to watch. Like my heart when I just watch her is so full and I'm really nervous for her this season. Yeah. I've been nervous for her going into this season. I think she's like one of the like top tier characters on the chopping block, but I just, I want her to live. <laughs> I want her to live so badly. And I'm going to be devastated if she dies. Devastated. Oh, I mean, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Um, so if this is what really happened with Dioza, I, I will say I'm a little confused about the whole issue with, like, Hope and Anders. It, it feels a little strange because the way that it was set up, it definitely made it seem like Hope had seen something very upsetting when it came to her mother. But if we're to, like, believe this opening scene in this episode, it doesn't seem like Hope ever saw her mother at all. I guess it is possible that Anders, like, showed Hope a video of her mother, like, in her cell being tortured or something. That's what I was just going to say. Um, yeah. And I hope that they kind of explain that just because, you know, she has such a 
antagonistic relationship with Anders. And it seems beyond him just like having captured her, you know, like stopped her from finding her mother. Right. Um, I mean, like she seems like she truly hates him. Hates him. And like yeah. I can't think of any other reason why she would hate him unless something truly, she saw something truly terrible happening to her mother. And like, let's be honest, like Dioza being tortured with like the loud music and the lights, like that's pretty awful. It's Like horrible. if I'd seen that with my family you know I, I too would hate the person who was doing it so I guess maybe maybe she did see it on video but absolutely I mean I, th- I think watching her mom like slowly descend into like the, the more the harsher levels of torture I mean they only would need to show her a snippet for her to like lash out like that so but it still makes me feel deep down like we're missing something here I don't disagree like there's a piece that we don't know that has that doesn't quite fit yet so I also feel like they're keeping it from us on purpose right yeah there's like a whole chunk of time missing that we haven't seen yet and I don't know why. I mean, like, I keep fixing, fixating on it, but last episode, there were those two, like, glitch moments, mm-hmm. and one of them was whatever happened between Hope and Anders. Right. Like, I, so I just, I keep wondering, like, I feel like there is something there that we don't know yet, and I'm curious to find out what it is and how big of an impact it's going to have on us, or if it's just the show, like, <laughs> deciding that they don't really care to show that part, and they're yeah, just going to, like, no. let you fill in, the, fill blanks. in the blanks. I hope that's not true, but... I hope it isn't either, but it wouldn't surprise me if it I was. mean yeah I mean there's like so much going on in this season um for better or for worse that it's like how much more can you <laughs> can you show in the past when you already have all of this like future problems to work out you know I mean it's true but also like a lot of these future problems like we can't fully understand them like it's almost like we're going it backwards like yeah you know it's like the future is actually like the present right now and like it's- we're the MCAT machines right Exactly. <laughs> um, and then just one more note here. I feel really bad for this like poor peon guy who got his throat ripped out by Diosa. It was truly disgusting. I mean, he was like a little pathetic. He was like, "Oh my god, I'm so sorry, Miss, that I made you choke." And then she just murders him. And then like, he was also like, "I'll let you go. I'll yeah. let you go." I mean, like I know she had to kill him because he like clearly seen too much, but what I a, mean, what a way to die. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like she could have just chained him up, you know, where she was. Uh, I don't feel like she had to kill him, but she did. She chose to. There's a lot of death this episode. It was disgusting. Yeah. So poor guy. Gone too soon. (laughs) So Intra finds out that one crew's guns were stolen, and she's also frustrated and nervous to see that Russell, or as she now knows him, Shade Hedda, is being given time outside. She tells Shade Hedda that he's in charge, but he calls her out on her true fears, that if one crew finds out who he is, they'll follow him instead. Yeah, so just to back up here a little bit, um, I just wanted to make a note that I guess everybody on Sanctum just assumes that Clark and company are still on the, the moon, on yeah. the planet Sanctum, which, again, it just, like, puts into starker relief how weird it is that Clark left the planet without talking to Indra or saying goodbye to Maddie. Like, that seems bizarre i will say i mean the plan had been for gaia to go back and tell them and obviously clark and co don't know that gaia also got pulled into the anomaly well, sure but i mean i do agree i think she did tell maddie that she was like going and she might be gone for a little while um i just don't think that she expected to actually leave the planet <laughs> i mean i'm gonna say with within this um i think it's a little odd that they're not worried that they haven't returned yet because like they took motorcycles like it shouldn't take them that long so the fact that they're still gone 
like, wouldn't you start worrying that something had happened? I mean, like, obviously they're not going to think, oh, they must have jumped planets because they don't know that yet. But I would have started worrying, like, oh, what if they got captured? What if they're hurt? You know, what if? Yeah, like super practical concerns. Yeah. Absolutely. But at this point, I mean, like, it has only been a day. Like, this is the next morning after the Clark and Co. had, like, jumped to the other planet. So it hasn't been that long, but I still. Guess so, but still. Yeah. Um, and, and just honestly, poor Nelson, he just really wants someone to talk to. I know. <laughs> He's like, Indra, please talk to me. <laughs> he needs Dioza, honestly. He does need he Dioza. Dioza couch time. Yeah. <laughs> I love Nelson. I, I know, know you have some like stuff to say later on in this episode. Well, no, I, I mean, I also really love Nelson. I just find him a really interesting character, and I wish that we'd gotten more of him last season. That's um, exactly, yeah. Because he was, he was really was flat say. last season, and I think this season they're adding more depth to him, and I'm excited to see it, and I, I, I don't know where it's going, but... Yeah, yeah, no, I, I love Nelson. I think, again, he's very dynamic to watch, and I think he brings a lot to the show. Mm-hmm. So just just keep an eye on, on all Nelson here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I also wanted to call out, so the character Lindo the Defector is in this scene, and I had pinpointed um, that character's name in the IMDb uh, pages when we were first doing our trailer, you know, uh, recap. But what I didn't realize is that Lindo the Defector has actually been in a couple of episodes of the show before. Um, he was in back in season five, um, he was the character who broke when Octavia was shooting all of the people who weren't eating the, the cannibal meat. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I mean, it's never clearly stated, but I think that's why he's called Lindo, Lindo the defector. Cause he like defected from the, uh, the group that had like set their minds to not, to not participate, not eating people. Yeah. <laughs> um, that would suck to have that nickname stuck. With, truly stick with would. You. And like, this boy is dramatic as hell. Like with his like little hood, <laughs> you yeah, look he's ridiculous. Some Sky Reaper there. He really is. Uh, also of... some like shade Hedda with like the the hood and like deep and mysterious. Yeah. You know, like from back in in season six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so he's uh, also kind of hot. I mean, he like has a hot look to him. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. I don't mind it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still ridiculous. But it's still ridiculous. <laughs> this is true. Um, I also wanted to ask. So to clarify. Uh, the guy who came to talk to Indra about the guns said that there were no guards on the guns. And I wasn't sure if that meant did the guards, like, were the guards in on it? Did the guards, whoever they were, help um, the Allegius people to steal the, steal the guns? Or did, like, the one crew guards kind of defect because this whole group is breaking up and just decided not to guard the guns? Yeah, I asked. I had a very similar question because I was very unclear on this, but I think just like listening to you talk through it, I'm inclined to say that it was the latter and that they had put non tree crew guards on the guns who maybe just didn't show up to their post or maybe left their post because of the like, you know, fractions of like one crew and left the guards and left the guns unguarded. And that's why Nikki could steal them. Yeah, I mean, as Indra kind of states a little bit later in this scene, it seems like she's only now going to trust Tree Crew to guard Shade Hedda and to do, um, you know, whatever the guards need to do. I mean, I guess for a short period of time, because that changes at the end of the episode. Um, But I guess Tree Crew is the only one who, like, respects Indra as a leader um, at this point. Yeah. Which makes sense, because she kind of was a leader with them. Yeah. um, Or at least a second in command. She's also Tree Crew. Like, Uh, no, that's what, but, but like, she, it's not just that she was Tree Crew, but she was like, the, the head of tree crew at the mm-hmm. time, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I loved like getting that little callback. Um, as much as I also love 
you know, what comes later with one crew. So. Yes, for sure. Um, there is a lot of plot in this, like every other episode this season, there is just so much ground to cover. Um, it's like so much that literally Indra can't keep up with it. <laughs> She's like, Nelson, I don't have time for this. Sit down, son. <laughs> and honestly, like I can't keep up with it either, but I do think unlike previous episodes, the again, the way that the plot is structured is a way of informing a character's um feeling so like Mm -hmm. there is like an overwhelming amount of plot but that serves to to like show how overwhelmed indra is feeling and so that in itself is i think better yeah that's just like better storytelling um even if you have a ton of stuff to get through and even if you have a lot of info dumping to do like at least you can use it utilize it to inform a character Sure. And I I do feel like even though, yes, there is a lot of plot in this episode, it's not as much plot as has been in previous episodes. It's true. It's true. Um, Which was really helpful, I think. I I do want to call out, you know, Shade Russell speaking Trig was like an odd flex here, but okay. (laughs) I mean, it's just like he likes to dig. Oh, oh, for sure. For sure. Um, I mean, but he has to be careful as well because he's walking on thin ice. I mean, he does have a foothold in, in the the clans of one crew for sure but you know he's also on the <laughs> on the stake if you will about to be burned uh, sure. with any wrong move so <laughs> for sure um we can see here that indra is just like barely holding on like her desperation is starting to show she's like fraying at the edges she does like um adina porter does some really interesting stuff with her like acting in this in this scene with Shade Hedda because it's like Indra is always so much in control but like the way that like she shows that maybe she's like losing it a little bit it's just like a little bit extra frantic like frenetic energy mm-hmm. it's not like like she she's always so poised she's like always so comported like all this stuff but she there is just like this edge to her that we never really see before um which I think is so interesting and like Adina Porter does such a good job yeah I'm really glad that you just brought up Adina because she truly has always been such an enigmatic um actress to watch I think she does incredible work really across all the shows um she always brings a really kind of unique energy to her roles yeah um but with Indra specifically one thing that I am really loving about this season is they've brought Indra out of kind of the background and more into the forefront in a way that she hasn't been in a few seasons um and she's really just showcasing Adina's talent and also showcasing how powerful Indra is as a character and has always been you know 100% and again like this whole episode is about Indra finding the confidence within herself to do what is necessary instead of relying on on others Mm -hmm. and really stepping up as a leader yeah like fulfilling her own role as she could and should absolutely um which is awesome I do think like this whole interchange between the two of them between Indra and Shade was really interesting because like Indra walks in there she like bustles in there and she's like I'm in control I can kill you at any point blah 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 and then like with like one sentence Shade Hedda like turns the tables and the power dynamic completely switches like he is 
really really good at shifting power dynamics like immediately and we see him do it again later with Nelson Mm -hmm. there's just not a lot that intimidates him and that in and of itself is very scary yeah you know when I when Indra comes into the room and like says like I am in control I think even at that point she doesn't believe it no she doesn't um she's like trying to convince him but she can't even convince herself at the time um I mean like so she should be afraid that Shade Russell could take over again because he is such um of magnetic presence yeah and he's terrifying but he's also like you just want to watch him and you like I like I want to hear him talk because he's just so um what's the word I'm looking for charismatic I mean he's so charismatic yeah and I mean charismatic and terrifying yeah well I mean that's exactly it right it's like the this combination of being charismatic of of being a, like somebody who is very alluring and very attractive um wh- who also has the capacity for the kind of violence and disorder and chaos that he is prone to that's a really dangerous combination and it's terrifying yeah i mean aside from you know jr born's just incredible um hotness that he brings he's to so the hot. table i think he's really done something amazing with shade Hedda's character too because I mean, everyone hated Shade Hedda last season. Everyone. Well, it wasn't even hate. I wouldn't... Well, I, like, no, that's true. Everyone didn't care about Shade Hedda. It was, like, apathetic. It was a waste of our time. Yes. There was just total apathy towards this character. And I don't know if it's the writing or if it's what that other actor was bringing. I think it was a lot of both. I think it was both, but it was also the styling choices. Yeah. You know, when you put a character in a giant robe and make him ghost white and like have like, wasn't, wasn't his eyes. Yeah. Like (laughs) stitches over his face and like these weird, like kind of monk, like, you know, I mean like he just looked ridiculous. He looked like a cartoon villain and there's not a lot of nuance there. And for a show where you've come to expect a lot of nuance from your antagonists, that was easy to dismiss mm-hmm. um, in a way that what J.R. Bourne is doing and the way that they have styled him and the way they've made him so attractive and the writing they've given him and all of these things combined um, is super intriguing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's just like comparing apples to oranges, really. Yeah. And then, like, one last thing here in this scene. So Shade Russell pinpoints that the only threats to his his position as commander or, like, him taking over as commander are Maddie and Clark because they're the only two people who've had the flame. And he, I think, rightly calls that Maddie is not um, in a position right now to take control. Not quite up to the task, Um, But, and he's never, I guess he has met Clark um, briefly. Yeah, he has. He's had a couple of exchanges with her. I think, though, that he's, like, able to pull out some of Russell's memories of Clark, too, and, and really see her potential as a leader and, and what she could be if she chose to try to take control from him. Um, and I think Clark, out of everyone, is the only person who maybe even slightly intimidates him. I agree. And I think it's super interesting that as he's talking to Indra, like, he doesn't even... Indra's not even on his radar as someone who is a threat to his power, right? Yeah. She he, she doesn't she's not even a blip, but Clark, who's nowhere to be seen, has already made such an impression on him that he, she makes him nervous. Yeah, um, and he's using that to destabilize like Indra's regime. But little does he know that like that's not going to work. <laughs> it isn't. <laughs> Indra is a lot more than meets the eye. So on Nakara, Raven is able to pinpoint where the Anomaly Stone is, and they head off toward a cave entrance to find it. When they enter the cave, though, they end up being attacked by a terrifying-looking spider alien, and they also discover that the cave walls move and are dripping with acid. 
Yeah, so welcome to Hoth. <laughs> I mean, Nakara. Uh, it was the first of many Star Wars references in this episode, which I loved. Yeah, it's definitely not subtle. No, no. I mean, but it didn't need to be subtle because it was an homage. Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. I mean, this the, episode. In, in the sweetest way. The whole the planet in this episode is just meant to serve the character interactions, which I you know think is great. Yeah. Um, but the planet itself is also really fun. And it so is. It's it's great. I'm excited to talk about it a little bit more. But before we get into really the planet, I did want to ask. So why exactly does the anomaly stone bring people to different places than the actual stone is? Um, because like on Nakara and on Skyring. The anomaly opens up in one place and the anomaly stone is close by, but not there. But like in Bardo, the anomaly stone and where the anomaly opens up seem to be in the same place. And so I'm kind of wondering, like, is it possible to have the anomaly spit you out like on different places on the same planet or it does it just open in one place? Dude, that's such a good question. And again, I have no idea, but it it. I'm truly baffled. Also, why is like Clark? I mean, they're literally dropped in the middle of nowhere, and Clark is open. The scene opens with Clark screaming for Bellamy and the others, which I think was just like a really cheap, like, here you go, guys. Like, I don't count that. That's not like a, <laughs> that's not like a Clark missing Bellamy moment. There was no emotional heft to that. So uh-huh. like, that doesn't count. That was an aside. But she's like screaming for them. I'm like, do you see yeah. anyone around? Is there literally? anything out there but ice (laughs) why are you calling for them you are alone (laughs) and again that just like leads to your question of like how did they get to this spot why is this spot relevant in like the anomaly bridge yeah i mean i still just want to know where did the anomaly come from i don't know (laughs) we won't know for a while i hope we do find out and i hope it's not just that the anomaly just popped up on these, you know, certain planets, um, especially if all of these planets are livable. Science. Science. <laughs> Magic. Magic. Science. <laughs> um, but I do think it is interesting that they assume that they're on the wrong planet right off the bat, just because, like, there's nothing, you know, here in this immediate vicinity. But, I mean, like, it's still a whole planet. Yes, this is my point about the Bellamy and, like, screaming for Bellamy and the <laughs> others. I'm like, okay, you've moved two feet two feet you've looked two feet how do you know that this isn't the right planet i mean i guess they might just assume that if the disciples were on this planet that they would have built their whatever compound right near the anomaly which probably is true probably, um, but, but like, i'm always like you know there, there still is a whole planet just right. like there's all of skyring that they haven't explored yet except also, that one like, little tiny place all of earth well like the longest time they were like this is the only spot of green <laughs> they were like Earth is a big place. <laughs> I mean, I have to believe that that might come back into play later on in this Maybe. season. Like um, the only because of, it was so ridiculous. The only part of Earth that lives is Washington, D.C., yeah. also known as Vancouver. Yeah. But like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I have to believe, because we even called that out in season five. Yeah. About, like, really? There's this only this one green place. <laughs> so, um... But yeah, uh, yeah, just a lot of assumptions about, you know, how like liv- livable we conditions. We are the last of the human race. <laughs> over and over and over again, you are not. <laughs> um, and then switching gears here, Nyla is truly just vibing this whole episode. Oh yeah, she's like really enjoying herself. <laughs> yeah, she's just like down for an adventure, you know. I I'm not sure if I would have pinpointed Nyla as like the dad humor kind of of lady, but I'm not not into it <laughs> no i think it, it's just i mean i love a good pun i don't care where it comes from so i mean i still think it's 
odd a little bit that Nyla's on this trip out of all of them. Yes. Um, so I'm, I'm curious if she's going to come into play in a bigger way or if they just needed something to do with her character this well, season. Well, I feel like part of it is because they needed two people who were in the bunker to recognize the second dawn symbol. I mean, why would they need two people? I don't know. I think they could have done it with Miller. But I mean, I, so I, I just think like there's got to be something else to come with Nyla. She can't just be like the tag along, you know? That's true. Also, I just feel like they were, as a group, very like lucky 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 that the stone is like within walking distance you know because they didn't pack any supplies or food or anything it's like oh it's just 40 meters that way you know what just occurred to me too which is very strange so the anomaly opens up on the mountain on top of nakara yeah and as we see they like actually have a body buried here one of the bardoans or um the disciples i'm not sure exactly which one i think it was the disciples right because they had the, the little symbol um so that means that they come to Nakara, they bury their bodies specifically on top of this mountain that we see for sure, and then they have to walk all the way to the Anomaly Stone through the Cave of Terrors? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. I know. I mean, like, aside from the fact that it doesn't make any sense, why do they dispose of their bodies here on this planet? I don't know. Like, I, I wonder, like, maybe if it's just that it's too hard to get rid of bar- bodies on Bardo because you can't go above the surface, or... Maybe, but, like, I don't... I, it sounded like at the end of the episode they were talking about how, like, they wanted to go to a planet where they don't have to feed, feed them their the, bodies their, to, to the, the dead. dead. But, like, why, why? would you be feeding... Why does this, like, Earth monster need to be fed yeah. on a different planet? I, I don't get it. I don't get it. So I'm, I'm wondering if we're going to get that explained later on or if it's just going to be like a, a what, whatever, yeah. you know? <laughs> I think it's a whatever, but if we get more answers, that would be cool. Yeah. And do we think that the entire planet is an organism or is the organism just living on the planet? You know, like... Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I have no idea. I truly don't know if the planet is a living organism or if there are very large living organisms within just the, like, like buried in structure the structure yeah. of the yeah planet i don't know okay i don't know <laughs> and i don't think we're gonna find that one out probably not i think that one's just like gonna have to be a given <laughs> um they do some really interesting camera work which i knew they would because they've done stuff like this before um where when, the second that they enter the cave the camera mode switches into um like a very close-up shaky cam which is obviously very reminiscent of like horror movies and thrillers and things where it's supposed to be very suspenseful very close up on your face so you like can't see any of your environment um it's very very effective and um you know it just like makes you feel this like super claustrophobic horrific like terror feeling um I just think it works really well. I actually hate that. No, um, I know you do. Because I, I just, it's like too dark. I can't freaking see anything. It's like hard to follow for me a lot of the times when the shaky cam is just everywhere. Yeah. Um, and for me, like I don't, I, I guess it doesn't really evoke the the feelings that I think it might evoke in other people. For well, me, it, it does, just evokes annoyance. Well, yeah. I But I think like your tolerance for being scared is much higher than mine. Sure. Because like. You need the, like, the mere suggestion of being scared, and then I'm, like, terrified. Like, I'm the biggest scaredy cat of all time. And so it's not so much that I think the shaky cam in itself is, like, scary, but I think what I am now socially, like, conditioned to expect when you get these kinds of visual cues 
um, means that something scary is coming. Sure, and I think they're also doing it because um, they're able to, you know, have this whole alien scene on a much lower budget because they don't have to put a lot of effort into showing it. Oh my god, it's mostly yeah. just but you that thinking about it. Was very bad. It was terrifying. No, but, but like the graphics were bad. It wasn't too bad. I mean, I honestly, they were bad. I think it could have been worse. But, I mean, definitely most of what we saw was just its mouth. <laughs> so yeah, no. Its little gnashing teeth. <laughs> yeah, God, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. I truly, you know, look, I'm with Jordan. Seeing aliens is pretty awesome. I was, you know, really loving it being on this side of my TV screen. But I will say... Um, I wouldn't necessarily want my first alien that I, I saw to be a spider alien. That just wouldn't be my choice. <laughs> no, mine either. Uh, but it was fun to see, like, the first alien creature on the show that's not, like, a bug or a plant. Yeah, no, for sure. I, um, I'm i fine. Or a jellyfish. <laughs> I'm fine never seeing an alien. I'm with Miller. I hate this planet. <laughs> I, like, I'm right along there with him. Let's get off of it as soon as possible and never return. And what I love about Miller, too, and I think that they played into that in this episode, is that in horror movies, it's always like that stereotype that the black character gets killed first. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's something that I, I hope that we're going to be changing moving forward into uh, <laughs> the, the, the future of filmmaking. But historically, it's been like the super, you know, racist idea that like the black person who's usually pretty funny, like gets killed off first. Yep. And Miller would probably be that person here. And he's um, at the back of the group. And he's at the back of the group. So, like, for a while, I definitely worried about him. But then I was also like, there's no way they're going to play into that trope. No. No way. Zero. Um, so I did love that I feel like they were, in fact, not playing into the trope, but calling it out this whole time. I agree. I with thought Miller that was just fun. not here for this. No. He, 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 he's seen enough movies. Yeah. He knows. He knows he's in trouble. And I'm right there along with you, Miller. I hate it. <laughs> Uh, Indra and Murphy talk to Nikki in their search for the missing guns, and it becomes clear that she not only has the guns, but she's also out for revenge on Raven for Hatch's death. And elsewhere in Bardo, Dioza reunites with Hope and Octavia, and the group heads off to find the stone room and escape Bardo. Um, so I guess first off in this scene, as funny as it is to see Murphy interact with Jerry, I'm also like... This dude just last night was about to let his child get burned alive. So I'm like not chill with Jerry. I'm not chill with Jerry either, but I think that the, I agree with you. Uh, <laughs> but I think that the purpose of this was to show that like minds can be changed and mm -hmm. that like humanity, you know, like there is some common humanity. If you like share a drink with someone and you find that common ground and there is ways to like reconnect with people and bring them back from like their darkest moments their darkest selves and I just it was like a very light moment um you know it was almost sweet um and I I think it was meant to show that like people can come back but but I don't agree that I want Murphy hanging out with Jerry well I so I agree with the sentiment there that like yes people can come back but I think in this specific case the believers or the faithful just last night were ordered by Russell you know Shade Hedda um to not burn people not burn themselves like I, I don't feel like this scene really shows you know Jerry or any of the others coming around they just well, still think that the status quo is in check but Jerry left before Shade has a Shade had a ordered them to stop the did burn. he yeah he grabbed the kid and ran out of the tavern at what point right when murphy was like take him and get out of here so jerry grabbed him oh and left. okay i totally missed yeah that. so jerry actually made the decision 
to save his son before he was ordered to by Shadeheda. I mean, at that time, he was ordered to, quote-unquote, by Daniel. Well, sure, <laughs> but... but I think at that point, it was, like, finally, like, he was, like, given an out, and he yeah. took it. Um, so that's why I think this scene probably resonated more with me than it did with you. Okay. Well, no, that, that helps a little bit. Um, and I do think what the purpose of this scene really is, is to show that Murphy is starting to care a little bit more about the people of Sanctum and and the faithful in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, even, you know, after what they were going to do to him last night, I think he's started to see some of them a little bit differently. And I think going forward, we're going to see that sort of arc for him of him, like, I don't know if necessarily him becoming a leader is where this is going, but him coming to care for more people just outside of his own little family unit. Well, again, yeah. I mean, I think what what happened last night was that he was able to see, I think before he was looking at them as sheep, you know, as like no, there was nothing, there's no empathy there because mm-hmm. like they are willingly being deceived. Um but after last night, to, to see the lengths that their their faith brings them to, sacrificing their own children, I think that it stirred a lot of pity in Murphy. And yeah. like, that is not an emotion that Murphy has very often. I think it's a new color on him. It's true. <laughs> so this is sort of, again, it's sort of um, expanding his emotional vocabulary in a way that he's, he's growing. Um, it's helping him grow, mm-hmm. um, which I think is really interesting. I'm still having a hard time tracking Murphy's like emotional progress this season. I feel like it's very like leapfroggy all over the place. Like I don't get me wrong, I thoroughly enjoyed Murphy in every second of his time on screen mm-hmm. in this episode. I will not deny that. I just think it's fantastic. Richard Harmon is a killer. Yeah, hands down. Oh, he's he's an incredible actor. But it does feel like we've, like, leaped frog over a few, like, key essential emotional steps. And I, uh, like, that would make his, like, development or his arc either clearer or more cohesive. I just, like, d- I don't really know what we're doing with him. I think the, the major problem with Murphy this season is they didn't um, establish him well in the first couple of episodes. Yeah. They didn't, like, establish his baseline for this season. He was kind of all over the place in episodes one and three, um and so and especially in episode one I think and especially I keep saying especially especially after the events of last season I think it was really important that they needed to kind of show where Murphy currently sits and not just that he's depressed you know like they really needed to be more Murphy work done and I also feel like with every character in order to track an arc you need to establish what they want Mm -hmm. versus what they need and with Murphy I don't think that we established either of those things so it's very hard to know how it's very hard to like measure how far we're getting to this goal if you don't have if you don't establish what that goal is in the beginning Mm -hmm. like you're saying um so yeah again I love I enjoy him immensely I don't I think that his like work the his like character work on this in this season is sloppy yeah I mean like yeah it's it's definitely the writing for him and not the acting for sure he Richard Harmon is a scene stealer and every single scene that he's in like he's just He's, I mean, he's just incredible. He's, I like, he's gold. I can't even fathom what he's done with Murphy in these last seven seasons, you know, like taking Murphy from season one to season seven. Yeah, no, it's incredible work. Um, speaking of Murphy, I also thought it was a little surprising, like how effective and like how helpful he was when they were talking to Nikki. And I'm just wondering, like, what in their mutual history together gave Indra the impression that Murphy would be the man for this job? Well, I think for Indra, she 
knows that Murphy was really the only one of them to have spoken to Hatch much at all. Um, and so, like, Hatch is obviously kind of the way to Nikki, um, you know, for better or for worse. And Clearly worse. <laughs> I think Murphy kind of developed, like, a lot of respect for Hatch in their short time together. Oh, for sure, for sure. I mean, they were really great characters to see side by side, as we talked a lot about in that episode. I mean, it was a lot of ways, like, Hatch is a version of what Murphy could be in another mm-hmm. 10, 15 years. Um, I just was a little surprised at how good Murphy was at talking about this. <laughs> and then even more surprised that Indra had the like wherewithal to ask him to help in the first place. That's true. So, you, you know, it was a lot of surprises. I mean, I think we're just supposed to see that Murphy is developing more empathy all around. Yeah. Um, in I this agree. season, which is great. And it's something that we've been wanting for a long time. Um, but you've got to like follow through with it. And at this point, I'm still not sure where the arc started, so it's hard to see where the arc's going to end, but... Yep, yep, yep. yep. I do want to say, so I know we had to involve the the convicts this season since, like, they were up in space frozen and, like, can't just leave them there. Um, But I will say, I think that, well, number one, the whole convicts issue is a villain too many, but especially Nikki herself, it's just... One villain too many in a season that has a lot of villains already. Yeah, I mean, it's like they, they kept delaying the inevitable because they just didn't know what to do with the Gilgis convicts, mm-hmm. and then they were, like, out of seasons, and they're like, well, guess we better address this now, and it's like, okay, well, we have, let's count them, four antagonists this season? Yeah. Like, that's a lot. It's a lot. And, you know, probably we're going to have more once Cadigan wakes up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's too many. Um, but, you know, so Nikki, she wants to kill Raven, and it's like, I'm sorry, honey, Raven's a little off-planet at the moment, Yeah, so. sorry, boo. <laughs> she's not here right now. She's not here for this angst. Come back later. <laughs> I not do. that Nikki cares. No, Nikki, doesn't, Nikki, Nikki is, can hold a grudge. Yeah. She can hold on to that grudge <laughs> just fine. Like my Nikki. That would be my twin. Um. So, Indra, I do like that Indra shows off a bit here, and she, you know, she she sort of plays Nikki into basically confessing that she's got the guns, you know, after she doesn't bother asking what was stolen, and I like this kind of manipulation. It's, again, a skill set that you don't normally associate with Indra as being a little bit manipulative. She's always so direct and straightforward, but I really like this, again, sort of reinforcing the idea that, like, Indra is really, really capable and good at a lot of things. I will say I don't read this scene as her like manipulating Nikki into m- revealing her cards. I think that Indra is a very straightforward person, but she's also very perceptive. So just judging by the fact that like Nikki hasn't asked what was stolen is like tipping Indra off that like, yeah, she has the guns. No, no, for sure. But I think the way that she set up this conversation um, was like, oh, there was something stolen last night. Like she purposely like omitted the mm-hmm. guns part so that like she could tell whether or not Nikki would pick up on okay, that. Okay, yeah, I can see that. Um, I think it's a little bit of both. Yeah. And again, I think it's just supposed to show, again, like, she has a lot of cards to play. Like, she has, like... Andrews, this isn't her first rodeo. She's got game. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And you know what? Nikki is fucking pissed. She is. Um, Murphy's right. Like, we're in deep trouble. We are in trouble, but, like, at the same time... How much trouble can we be in? You know, we already have Shade Russell to deal with. Who who has time for Nikki right now? Well, that's the thing. Is like, at what point is the Nikki, Elijah's conflict going to 
resolve itself. I'm going to say it's going to come to a head next episode. (laughs) (laughs) Having watched the promo. (laughs) Yes, I think that's probably true. But I do think that this like whole shade had a Nelson, you know, ally with the convicts thing is like for going to play out into like a much larger ultimate like showdown taking out Shade Hedda. So Sure, but it's like to what end? The end of the season. <laughs> That's the end. <laughs> like for what purpose? No, no, I know what you're saying, but I'm saying like <laughs> it's to draw out till the end of the season. I guess. I mean I guess. I still would have just preferred for us not to focus much on Sanctum this season. I know, it's a lot. But it is what it is. Um and I will also say don't you dare compare my Queen Dioza to Machine Gun Nikki. <laughs> True. I do think that they, they really just threw this Dioza line in here so that they could justify the, like, awesome transition over to Dioza. It's true, but, like, Dioza and Nikki are nothing alike except for the fact that they're blonde women who are scary. But, like, Dioza... Not that I'm saying Nikki's not smart because I, I think Nikki is very, like, with it. But Dioza is brilliant she's, and she's like a tactical genius she is and she's a genius she's also extremely calm and extremely together and like her emotions never really get away with her whereas like nikki is a little bit of a hot mess right now she's, she is a hot mess that's like for sure guaranteed so um not into it not into it nikki does not even compare to dioza although nikki's hair is incredible nikki's hair is unbelievable yeah. and i am High key jealous. Like, <laughs> high key jealous. Um, but I did really like this transition over to Dioza. I thought that was awesome. Yeah, and I mean, we get to see Dioza here taking out more people, especially the like scar guy. Yeah. Who uh, she gave him three counts. She was like, "I'm gonna give you three scars for what you've done to me," and she chose instead to just stab him in the neck. It seemed like it. That it counts counted for three. <laughs> Um, but Dioza's super lucky that the knife she threw at Hope didn't, like, actually hurt her. I know. Like, I'm surprised that they... I don't know what the point of that was. Because, like, it should have killed her. It should have. Like, I feel like the knife was long enough that it should have, like, killed her. It was definitely too long not to kill her. Yeah. So, like, why did you do that in the first... I don't get it. But, and whatever. I mean, I think just for dramatic effect. But, like, it was <laughs> stupid. Um, and I love... I love that like even after all of the torture and all the time apart Dioza knows Octavia so well and is like so well trained at being perceptive that she notices immediately that something is off with Octavia sure I mean I think personally the like Dioza hope Octavia family reuniting was a perfect moment it was truly perfect and it just brought back all of my feelings from episode two when they were like being a family and I just I love this group together it's like everything I ever wanted I I just like the three of them supporting each other and being tender and like Octavia I mean Dioza like reaching out with Oct- to Octavia with like such tenderness and understanding and like touching her cheek and then like this giant group hug and I'm just like I could have watched, like, another four to five minutes of this. Yeah, you know, I love both of their interactions with Hope, but I think especially with Dioza and Octavia and just knowing their entire history and seeing where they've ended up now is really powerful. So Um, true. And I I just, I don't want Dioza to die. (laughs) I don't want her to die either. I want this to continue. Um, But also Octavia seems incredibly 
empty after Bellamy's death, um, quote unquote death, mm-hmm. um, in a way that shows that I don't think she's necessarily processed, but because she's had, you know, a good 10 years away from her brother, I think she's got a little bit of distance there that will allow her to process this better than Echo, who has really been like single-mindedly trying to get back to Bell or to Bellamy to for the last five years, you know, on yeah. her planet. Like that was like her entire purpose, purpose. of being. Um, and Echo clearly is not processing at all no, right she now. She is shut down. She's like running on, you know, robot. She's yeah. a robot right now. I, I do want to mention someone on Twitter told us that we weren't talking enough about Echo's hair. And so I have to say again, every single time Tazia with her new haircut is on the screen, I like want to scream because she looks so good. She looks so good. And I think one of the reasons we're not talking about her hair enough is because they keep putting her in these fucking helmets. <laughs> Let her hair be free. I'm sure we'll see more of her hair later on this season. I would appreciate that. Um, but it's it's just, it's like it fits her so well. It and I'm kind of like, oh my them. gosh, why did you have long hair this long? You should have definitely had the short hair the yeah, whole time. Yeah, you should have had a, like a um, pixie cut the yeah. entire time. So great. <laughs> So Nelson is allowed to see quote unquote Russell in order to show him or to shut him up. But when Nelson attacks Russell, he finds out that it's not the prime at all, but someone else in Russell's body. Shadeheda offers to help Russell or to help Nelson get the power he needs in his fight for justice. And in the car and tunnels, the walls shift and separate Clark and Raven from the rest of the group, only for them to realize that they're not in a tunnel at all, but inside a living organism who wants to digest them. Fun times. Yeah. So the Shade Head and Nelson scene was actually surprisingly fascinating to watch, and it was something that I didn't expect them to explore. Sure. I thought they, they are great together. I think this is what happens when you take two actors who are incredibly dynamic and magnetic to watch, and you put them in a scene together. I don't think you could go wrong here. <laughs> um, J.R. Bourne and, oh my god, I can't remember the guy who plays Nelson. I'll look that up later. Yeah. Um, but they're both very capable at... Um, Lee... Lee something. That's his first name, I okay. think. <laughs> uh, they're both capable of, like, scene stealing. So, like, yeah. when you have them together, it's just, like, fireworks. And it's it's an unexpected pairing with Shade Hedda and then Nelson. Um, and Shade Hedda having kind of revealed himself already. Um, I definitely thought he'd kind of play that more. But, I mean, he is playing it here. He's just playing it in a different direction than I thought you would take it. For sure. Um, and, like, to take a character like Nelson, who I think we've we've all come to kind of, like, like, he's very physically intimidating. He's, like, a big guy. He has this beard. You know, he's very aggro. He is, like, down to fight. Um, and then to just, like, see DTF. him get <laughs> obliterated on the floor. Like, yeah. he got his ass kicked. It, this, the choreography here. Oh, you were about to talk about that. I was literally going to say that. No, no, I'm so glad you mentioned it because yeah. I was just going to say, like, this is... This choreography was so perfect because it, like, enforces how fucking dangerous Shade had. He took Nelson out with one functioning arm. Well, and he kind of, like, the fighting style almost reminded me of Aang's fighting style and, like, the airbending fighting style oh, from yeah, Avatar. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, which is, like, the, you don't even let the other person touch you. But it's even more than that in that it's it's not um, offensive. It's only defensive. Mm-hmm. So, like, Russ, Shade Hedda was not making any, like, strikes to hurt or maim Nelson. Mm-hmm. He was only defending himself and preventing Nelson from hurting him. Well, yeah, and he was letting Nelson's aggression take Nelson out. <laughs> right. It was 
a sight yeah. to behold. And it also is a little surprising. That's not how I would have expected Shadehead at a fight. No. Um, not that I, I, I am sure he knows many different fighting styles, but this well, was... no, but I think this is, like, from the get-go, like, a seduction. Yeah. You know? Like, yeah. I think he was, like, purposely not hurting Nelson because he wants... He doesn't want Nelson... T- he he wants to entice Nelson yeah. to be intrigued by him and to seduce him into becoming an ally. And he can't do that if he's beating the shit out of him. Absolutely. So, like, this was all very calculated from the get-go. Um, is Nelson really, though, not going to probe deeper to figure out who Shade Russell is? No. He just kind of, like, takes it at face value that Russell's, like, not Russell. <laughs> um, and I thought that was a little strange because... Like, surely you'd have to wonder who could have had the capacity to take over a mind drive except, as far as Nelson is aware, another Prime, you know? For sure. I I mean, I, I guess it was just for expediency's sake. But I guess. <laughs> I, I thought that was weird, too. Um, but now that Russell's dead and there are no more Primes left, I'm trying to figure out what exactly Nelson wants. Because he says that he wants justice. Um, and, you know, conversely, Shadehead is like, no, you want power because power will get you justice. But I'm saying, like, what exactly does justice look like to Nelson? Like, what what is he after now that the Primes are gone? Well, I don't think Nelson knows. And I think this is, like, very similar to Echo, is, like, where you have, like, your one purpose, like, your one drive, your entire life for your for entire X amount of years, and then mm-hmm. it's, like, removed. It's, like, you are purposeless. Luckily, Shade Hedda swoops right in, and, like, again, this is a seduction. He is manipulating Nelson into thinking that he wants something that I don't actually think he does want, but it's better than nothing. I know it's like a, it's like filling a void. Yeah. I I will say that I understand. And I think it's true that Jadehead is like, you can't have the kind of justice that you want without the power to change things. Sure. Um, That's absolutely true. I just am more curious um, about what justice is going to look like now that the primes are gone. And (laughs) I wonder if we can hear the... I know, I'm curious. <laughs> You've got too. a little dog barking in the background now. Uh, but, yeah, so I, I'm i curious to see where Nelson goes from here. And I hope that he's not too manipulated. You know, I, I hope that they give him his own agency moving forward because I, I think he deserves it. And I know that he's being manipulated at this moment, but I, I want him I want him to have some level of justice and to find a level of peace. Yeah, I mean, I really love the idea of getting to know Nelson better, and I find him fascinating to watch, but I I do feel like this is a little too late in this series to be spending this much time on another character that is not part of our core group's, like, emotional arcs. I just, I wish that this had been introduced earlier, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, I definitely agree, and I, again, I think that, characters like Nikki are not as interesting to me as a character like Nelson so like if you're going to be focusing on one of these newer people I'm glad that it's Nelson um but that said there is so much happening this season and in many ways we've seen our main characters suffer because of it um I mean part of that is just because they wrote Bellamy out of half of the season which is honestly um pretty rough yeah. I, I think it, it just like it it hurts the show, um, and what also hurts the show is they've they've relegated Clark to almost a background role throughout a lot of this as well. Yeah, exactly. I could not have said that any better myself. Um, but like even with you know like characters like Raven who have been 
a little bit more front and centered. I'm still not quite satisfied. Um, and I, I want I want more from those main characters. Absolutely. And we get some this episode, but I, I still want more. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just so I don't think like any of it is as good as it could be or like lives up to the potential that I would want it to. Yeah. Um, Shade Hedda is melodramatic as fuck. Um, <laughs> he loves the sound of his own voice and like a true villain monologuing. Yeah. It's very convenient for in- exposition dumping. Uh, <laughs> it's great. He just like drops all this information at Nelson's feet, and it's like, wow, you're villain monologuing. Well, he also is like one of those villains who wants to be listened to, you know, like, like, and he doesn't, um, he doesn't accept Nelson not accepting him immediately. Like, he gets pissed at Nelson for like not like doing what he says. Yeah, he's like, don't make me repeat myself. (laughs) I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Uh, no one knows what he's talking I don't know what Shade Head is talking about because it essentially seems like Shade Russell is trying to get Nelson to join up with the convicts and the thieves. Um, but, like, for what? Did he, like, says to take out the queen, quote-unquote, which I guess is Clark. Um, but, like, for what purpose? Is he just trying to have his competition taken away? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I, it's another interesting transition here because, like, as Shade Hedda tells Nelson that they're going to take out their queen in quotations, um, he holds up the queen chest piece and, and it overlays with Clark. So I do think that it's meant to in, we're meant to infer that he's talking about Clark and that he wants to use the convicts and thieves and Nelson's group to take her out so that he can rule everyone. Um, but it's also like Clark's a little busy right now. <laughs> well, yeah, but he doesn't care. I know, but I'm just saying Clark's off planet. Like she, she can't deal with this shit no, right she now. She has so. to deal with this giant fucking tunnel monster. So that's what I'm saying. Like I, I'm curious where we're going to actually see this go in the next episode. It seems like um, because it just, it doesn't, it just doesn't seem. It all seems like a waste of time. I mean, <laughs> if yes. I'm being totally honest, it all seems like a waste of time uh, away from the things that we really care about. Yes, that's what I'm saying about Nelson. It's yeah. like, this is interesting. But, but, but Nelson doesn't feel like a waste of time to me. The plots feel like a waste of time to me. Yeah, 100%. But it's like all part and parcel. Yeah. Because it's all, all about sanctum and like I don't care. Um, but yeah, anyway, moving on. <laughs> So there's a creature, and yeah. it lives on the planet, and yeah. it wants to digest Raven and Clark. And, like, again, as we said at the beginning of this episode, like, this is such a contrived plot. But this is the con- kind of contrived plot that I am always going to be okay with, because the entire purpose of this plot is to, like, get Clark and Raven alone so they can talk. Yeah, it's to <laughs> facilitate an emotional development, yeah. which I'm 100% down for. Absolutely. Plot contrivances that lead to emotional growth. A plus. <laughs> plot contrivances that lead to more plot. D minus. Two thumbs down. Two thumbs down. <laughs> um, I did want to take a minute, though, and just, like, outline every single Star Wars reference that I caught. There <laughs> could be more. Um, but there were so many Star Wars references in this tiny little snippet of a scene. Uh, the first one is, like, the walls start in, suddenly start closing in on them um, and, config- and cut them off from the rest of the group, which is, like, just like the trash shoot from A New Hope. <laughs> um... Second, they realize that this isn't actually a tunnel. It's a living organism, which is just like the asteroid monster from Empire Strikes Back. And third, they realize that this 
that the acid is a digestive enzyme and all the better to eat them with, which is just like the Sarlacc pit monster in Return of the Jedi. So like all three of those things happened in succession in in consecutive order of those Star Wars movies, which I just thought was really fun. Yeah, this, I mean, this was not subtle about their, their uh, homage here. No, but it was great. <laughs> I love a good Star Wars reference. Uh, when our heroes on Bardo reach the Anomaly Stone Room, however, Levitt is there and he tells Octavia she should ex- escape to the surface of Bardo instead. On Sanctum, Indra comes to talk to Maddie into acting like the commander again in an effort to unite one crew. And on Nakara, Clark can comforts Raven, who's guilt-ridden after the recent deaths she's caused. Luckily, before Raven and Clark can be digested, the walls shift again and they're reunited with the rest of their group. Um, so let's go through this scene by scene. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot here, guys. Yeah. This was like three, um, uh, what do you call them? Climaxes for all of the... Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't consider the, the Sanctum plot to be climaxing here, but I think definitely with um, Bardo and with Clark and them, yeah. like the, this is getting into more of the climax. So definitely with Clark and Raven. For sure. Um, but let's first focus on the Octavia group on Bardo. Yep. Um, Levtavia. <laughs> it's, it's sailing. Well, it is sailing. No, it's sailing. Well, okay, here's the thing. I love this and I'm so, so into it. But I have seen rumors floating around online that Levitt isn't, you know, totally trustworthy. And I think that would be the kind of thing that this show would do. Um, and I will admit this scene is a little bit suspicious, like him just hanging out by the, the stone room, uh, waiting to tell Octavia that like, no, she shouldn't go in there. She should go up to the surface. Now, do I think that Levitt is like purposefully misleading them? No, I don't. If I had to guess, I would say no. I do think, though, that it is possible that he was, like, brainwashed in some way since Octavia last saw him. That, like, we don't know the full story of what happened to Levitt here. And I also want to call out the fact that, like, he is a level 11. And he's a level 11 for a reason. And it could just be because he was really good with the MCAT machine. Mm -hmm. Or it could be for other reasons that, you know, maybe he's really devoted and, and... that is something that they were able to manipulate. Um, and just the fact that Gabriel was, you know, unsure of him. And there was that moment where Gabriel kind of like looked back and seemed like he didn't quite trust uh, Levitt. That makes me think that Levitt isn't quite trustworthy. <laughs> yeah, no, I I think all of those things are totally fair and give me pause as well. Um, as far as like shipping goes, I ship them so I hard. Do too. I mean, like, again, it takes so little and we've been so dry for so long. <laughs> it's just like they are so, so good together. I love that Levitt is a janitor just like Bellamy was on the arc. I, you know, they're all these like little, I mean, I love the way that Levitt gushes to Octavia um that she showed him like a new way to live and made him feel new things and I'm just like my god my shipper heart it it's a lot it's a lot and I am not immune to it well and it's like more so than Levitt is Octavia and like he makes her smile and we haven't seen that very much at all in this entire series oh it's so true I mean just like that sweet little caress that she does on Levitt's cheek before she punches him in the face again I mean it's really sweet and it's reciprocated you know Mm -hmm. it's great and it like it does feel like this is moving quickly but at the same time I feel like they're like laying the groundwork in a way that they don't with a lot of ships like a lot of times it's like Monty and Harper Monty and Harper having sex and suddenly they're together Murphy and Amori like joining up and suddenly they're together (laughs) 
we go on a six-year time jump and suddenly Bellamy and, and Echo, Echo are, are together. together. Like the show doesn't know how to layer in relationships very well outside of Bellark. So no, I don't even think that qualifies as an exception. Well, no, but I mean, like with with Bellark at least, and what I don't think they're going to actually do it, but they've been layering in a slow burn romance. You know, whether or not they like see that romance through, like there is no arguing about it at this point they don't layer in other relationships to that same effect yeah um and so like this is something that i'm just really enjoying is like this kind of cute little flirtation that we just don't see very much no it's great i love it uh what do we think actually happens to the people on the surface of bardo i don't know i i'm like inclined to think like maybe it's like a you know there's like there's something toxic in the air that either like creates like a growth or like a cancer or a tumor that like does not kill you immediately but like is a fast-growing tumor or something that will kill you sooner rather than later i'm like wondering if this is the whole crystal giants thing that like there is some toxin in the air that like um fossilizes fossilizes you you, sort of i mean that seems kind of ridiculous but like that would make sense in in the idea that the surface won't kill you immediately but it will kill you if you're up there for too long if you like keep breathing it you'll just keep fossilizing yeah um that said like i don't really understand why that would be a good idea for them to go up there if they're going to be fossilized well maybe it's like they they can only be up there for it's like certain death in that room or like delayed death on the surface sure but like there what's the plan beyond that? i don't know <laughs> and i mean maybe that's what gabriel yeah, was thinking Gabriel's this whole time like, uh no <laughs> um but switching from this scene to the next one on sanctum Maddie has her little sketchbook out and she is drawing the anomaly stone. I know. Which means that one of the past commanders must have seen it and Maddie still has that memory in her head. And it leads me to believe that Maddie will be the one who will ultimately kind of reveal where the stone is on earth and where to find it. Yeah, I love this whole thing. And I love um, Luca asks her, is this from earth? And she's like, no, yes. I don't don't know. know. (laughs) You know, it's obviously very confusing and hard for her to parse out what memories are her own and what are the commanders and like, is it even, is it even a memory? Mm -hmm. Um, Which I think is a a cool and fun way to sort of like factor in that whole thing from last season without like getting too far down that rabbit hole. But I really like that they, they like call back to it. And I like this as like a, something for Maddie to contribute to the show. Yeah. I, you know, I wanted to mention um, that I wish that they had or were exploring more of Maddie's PTSD in a way mm-hmm. of like having all of these fragments of memories in her mind because we know the flame had already started to, to like disintegrate or like um, it wasn't working. It wasn't functioning in the way that it should have been. And so like the later commanders were always getting like weird fragments and weird dreams, but they weren't able to really parse things together. And so having that already and then having the flame taken out and then you're left with even more fragments and stuff, it must be like incredibly traumatizing. And I don't think that they're spending enough time on Maddie this season. hundred percent agree. And that's what I mean when I say like, it's fun to watch Nelson. It's fun to do all these cool new things with him. But like, ultimately like there are a lot of things that we need to be doing with our core group of characters, which I include Maddie in. Yeah. I just, I didn't realize until this episode that Maddie was so emotionally affected after the events of last season, which isn't like surprising as to why she would be that emotionally distressed. But I just feel like those opening episodes didn't place this in our mind again they like they did not lay the foundation for maddie's um arc this season strong enough just like murphy's and so 
that's like led me to like a little bit of a surprise in this episode where I'm like, oh, okay, now I understand why Clark was earlier saying like Maddie's not doing too well and she can't like lead and all of this stuff. Um, yeah, because again, I didn't, was, I didn't get it then because I didn't see that in Maddie. That's what I'm saying is it was a lot of telling and not showing, yeah. which is not good. Um, I did love seeing Maddie make friends though. Like <laughs> it's so nice. I friends. Just, I just want night. Well, friends. Crush. First crush. First crush. <laughs> I feel like this kid is gay, but who knows? Mm, I don't think this kid is gay in the show. I mean, I don't think we can say what this kid is outside of the show, but I think it's very clear that he was brought in to be like a crush for Maddie. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Um, yeah, I just like, I thought this was adorable. Yeah. I, this So this is Luca. Uh, and we had known, we talked about earlier that Luca's mom and Luca's dad had been cast in another episode and we didn't know who Luca was. <laughs> um, and so now it's clear that Luca is a knoll and that means that his parents, his mom and dad left him to die out in the forest. Yeah. Um, and he got rescued by the children of Gabriel. And so that is going to add a really, um, fascinating little, like, little side thread, I think, when we meet his mom and dad and we get to, like, really explore what that means. Um, because we know, like, Nelson's family still lives in Sanctum, and I'm not sure if we're going to meet them or not because he doesn't know who they are. Sure. But, um, it is clear that we're going to meet Luca's family, and so I think that it's really important that the faithful, or yeah, I guess they probably would be part of the faithful, that they really, um reconcile with the crimes that they've committed well we don't know that they're still with the faithful i mean they could very much have broken from them that's once true they revealed that they weren't real gods yeah. and i think people who sacrificed their children especially were probably prone to like fracturing that's true that's a good point um so yeah it'll be really interesting to see how they reconcile with those choices and if they are looking for forgiveness or atonement or i don't know and how they even figure out that luca is, is their theirs. son yeah for sure uh, I also wanted to say that this little Luca and Rex um, thing here, it feels very much like a little Jasper and Monty parallel. For sure. Because they like styled the two kids very akin to Jasper and Monty. They're very cute. And what I also love here is that in the same way that I think is true for our own world, um, this scene kind of shows that the younger generation isn't carrying around the same sort of biases and prejudices as their parents, that like it's going to be easier for these kids to um, change things in the future because they're more open to things that are different. Just like Rex is like open to allowing a Noel to play soccer with them. Totally. Um, so it just like, it gives a little bit of hope for the future and it's just like a taste, but I think it's, it's nice to see. Of course. Of course, I agree with you. And I think that was a really nice, like, tiny little snippet. Um, of course, Indra has to bring Maddie back into their dangerous reality that they've, like, all worked so hard to protect her from. Um, and at this point, I think it's very clear that, like, Indra is using the last card she's got. And that card is Maddie. And it's obvious that what Indra really needs to do is find the confidence and strength in herself instead of rely on this child. And it's clear that she, like, kind of already knows that, too, at this point. She just doesn't want to admit it to herself. Well, I don't think she can admit it to herself. I think she's going to need someone else to, like, force her to, of course, yes. to look at it. Yeah. I mean, that's a, a hard truth to face. And I, I honestly, I don't think that, like, Indra quite recognizes yet because she's never been a leader. Um, she's, like, constantly the second in command. And a lot of times is the power behind that leader. Yeah. But And I think she's really used to sort of not controlling but guiding mm -hmm. really young um, impetuous children yeah, she's a in a leadership position to do what is right. She is a seta and she does her job very well. Um, but in this case, true. I mean, like it's clear from this scene alone that like Maddie is not 
in the right mind space for this. No. Um, but I do love this line that she says to Maddie. She goes, we, ha- we all have responsibilities we must yield to, which I think is fascinating if you think about it in a way that it's like way more applicable to Indra and probably more descriptive of like her life and her childhood, always putting duty above anything and everything else um, than it is to Maddie. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways she's talking to Maddie, but she's really talking about herself. Yeah. I honestly don't think that Indra had much of a childhood. No. I mean, it sounds like Shade had conquered her tribe or her clan um, really, really early in her life. And even at that time, like she already sounded like she was a fighter because she looked down on her mother for for kneeling to Shadeheda. And so I think that she was really forced to take on that that role as a warrior from a very, very, very young age. Yep. Um, and that's why she's kind of like stuck in this cycle of, you know, expecting a lot from the younger generation because she had a lot expected of her. Exactly. I could not have said that better myself. <laughs> um Indra also tells Maddie that Clark would understand taking up the mantle and being a leader um, and sacrificing, like, personal, you know, choices. Yeah. Um, Which I think is very true. Like, Clark has always done that. That's Clark's MO. Um, I still don't think she would approve of this. but Of course not. (laughs) (laughs) But I did like the – I mean, I didn't like it. But I did think it was interesting that that Indra made that connection for Maddie – I just don't think that Maddie thinks of one crew as her people because she wasn't in the bunker. Well, see, that's what's confusing. Um, I mean, she wanted to take the flame. Yeah. Because she did see these people as her people. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, yes, she was very young, but they were all really young when they've been through all of these things. So, I mean, what's different for her is obviously she was possessed by Shade Hedda, which is pretty dark. Uh, But I, I really feel like... I want Maddie to recognize more of one crew as her people um, than what she's currently doing. Yeah. But I I guess at the same time, I I think probably where we're going is like, they're all going to become one people and it's not going to be like one crew and the convicts and the faithful. Right. So I guess maybe it makes sense right now that she's not viewing them as her people or actually what I think really is happening is she feels a lot of guilt for relinquishing her responsibility to them and it's hard for her to face them. And so she's kind of finding other outlets outside of one crew. But I do think that she holds a place for them in her heart. Of course. But I also think it's got to do with trauma. I mean, it's it's guilt for sure. But it's also the last time that she was a leader, the last time that she led them, she was possessed and traumatized. So, like, there is a little bit of PTSD along with this, Well, of course. I think that the trauma and the guilt are wrapped up in each other. For sure. Um, so finally we get to the Clark and Raven talk. And they get to have a longer talk than they did back in episode four, which is wonderful because that talk was not good enough for me um and i do still think that there is room for more growth between the two of them as this season progresses this talk felt like a good start um but it's it's not you know like the end all and be all and so i hope that they keep developing this relationship um and i hope that raven comes to see clark as she is and not how raven think she is you know yeah like Raven says here that Clark doesn't break but the funny thing is Raven and a lot of other people but especially Raven um has always been one of the ones who tells Clark that she's not allowed to break that she like has to hold it together that you know she's the one who has to make the list of people who are going to like live in the arc um in prime fire she's the one who always makes the hard choices and then she's not allowed to break because of it because that is her role um and so it's like interesting that like people both are angry at Clark for not being more vulnerable and then also blame her when she tries to become that 
that role, you know? Yeah, no, if it's it's a total double standard um, of people's expectations from their leaders and who people who are um, role models for them in a lot of ways. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, Raven has sat back on her laurels for a long time and has allowed Clark to bear the burden of that. And I think part of that guilt manifests in her taking it out on Clark. Sure, um, absolutely. And it's like this cycle. And it's, like, also funny because we know that Clark has broken many, many, many times. Many times. But, like, what's amazing about Clark is she's always able to kind of put herself back together and keep going. You know, like, as she said to um, Russell back in episode one, you take a breath, then another. You just, like, keep going. And that is what makes Clark such an incredible character. Yeah, she's so special, too. I mean, Raven describes Clark as a finely tuned engine, which I think is cute mechanic speak. (laughs) Um, Very Raven-like. But it's not true. We've seen her break. We've seen her engine crack <laughs> open many times. It's just that she has a small circle of one, really Bellamy, mm-hmm. who she confides in, who she feels comfortable enough being vulnerable to. Um, and the rest of everyone else, she has this facade, which they also expect to see from her. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a double standard that sort of goes back and forth and around and around. And it's really, I mean, I found this scene incredibly cathartic because, like, it's clear after the events um, with Hatch in the the reactor room that Raven needs to confess that what's really eating at her, like, her true feeling of guilt is that she could have welded the pipes together herself, but ultimately was too afraid to do so. Yeah. Um, Well, I, I, I think you can, you know debate the semantics of this because at the time it did seem like Raven had a really important job to do like manning the the coolant coolant and stuff Mm -hmm. I think again it's just the idea of like her sending in people who she was responsible for and sending them into their death when she could have done that herself but I think I think logically here Raven's not being fair to herself I think that she really did need to you know release the coolant because it sounded like it involved a lot of like math and things yeah for sure um but like obviously like her guilt is yeah her guilt is overwhelming and she needs to confess it and she needs somebody particularly Clark who has been in these situations before to forgive her like she needs forgiveness whether or not she can give it to herself is one thing but she needs an external factor to tell her like you did it for noble reasons. Yeah, I mean, it's just like Clark and Bellamy to each other. You know, if you need forgiveness, I'll give that to yeah, you. Yeah, like literally. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a great line. It's a great line. <laughs> um, and again, Bellamy's absence is is key here because, like, now that Bellamy's gone, Clark is also able to be a little bit more vulnerable with somebody else than she would have been ordinarily with Bellamy. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I'm saying that I like that Bellamy is gone, but it did afford her a small modicum of like of emotional uh, squishiness with Raven, which I like. <laughs> I did want to like a clinical term. emotional squishiness. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Very, very, very sciencey. Sure. <laughs> um, I did want to ask, is Raven really the best person that Clark knows? You know, I also was thinking that in my head and I was like, no, I think Raven is definitely one of the, like probably the smartest person Clark knows. Um, hands down. Is she the best person? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I I guess it depends on how you're measuring the word best. Yeah. Um, moral? I think that the show has definitely retconned Raven in these last couple of seasons. For sure. To be that, like, super moral, I never did anything bad kind of character that she never was in the early seasons. No, but she was very practical in yeah. the earlier seasons. But, I mean, I, I 
guess. I can't really think of someone else who would fit that, except maybe the way that they've kind of, like, categorized Monty. Although Monty's dead, so maybe she's not counting him. Maybe. And I also think that Clark has an interesting relationship with Raven in that they, you know, the way that they met each other and they're, like, fight over it was, it was not a, it was a fight, not a fight. Yeah. that's what i'm saying yeah. it's like they're they're both of their mutual attachment to finn but they didn't fight i think mm-hmm. a lot of that clerk saw that like raven was a little bit more evolved and a little bit of a better person because she didn't pick a fight with clark and she easily could have well i mean i think it could have gone both ways yeah. too clark could have hold a grudge held a grudge against her but i think that was one of the first things that made us fall in love with the show was having these like two amazing women not fight over the same man in, in a way that like any other show would have done. Yeah. It would have been, it would have been a cat fight. And I always, you know, really loved in the early seasons, their relationship, which was um, definitely not antagonistic. There was always kind of a, a line of these two women are very strong in different ways and they could very easily, rub each other the wrong way but instead these two are choosing to be friends and they're choosing to respect the other person and that always really um felt powerful to me for sure they have a tension between the two of them that is undeniable but often overlooked for the greater good Mm -hmm. um and their mutual respect for each other and i do still hold the idea and i don't think the show will ever really explore this but i think that ever since clark had to kill finn that tension has been a really strong undercurrent to their relationship. And I, I wonder how it would have played out had Finn not died, or at least have had Clark not had to kill Finn, you know? Yeah, I agree completely. I do love this question that Raven asks. Um, she sell, she says to Clark, you know, they loved people too. When does it end? Which is really, again, one of like the central questions of the show. And there's there's no clear answer to this, right? There is no end. Well, I mean, I mean, like, aside from the when does it end, I love Clark's it doesn't end here because it – it's not her saying, like, we don't die, like, right here. It's her saying that there is happiness out there for us. Like, we can find peace. We can find happiness. It's going to be a fight. It's always been a fight. But Clark still believes that they can reach a point of peace at the end. And that is powerful to me. Agreed. That, like, after everything Clark has been through, she can still have faith. Yeah. And I think that's what's powerful to Raven. And that's the, ultimately what she's saying here is, like, I just, how do you find the strength to continue hoping Mm -hmm. and having the optimism to go forward when it's so easy to give in to the fear and the struggle Mm -hmm. um i mean like this could have been my favorite line this was a line from the trailer and i've loved it since then um it's it ended up not being my total favorite but it really is up there just in the sense that i love every time clark and raven get to like have an in-depth discussion um and i i really love this idea here which is something we've been pushing for for a while about how Raven um, needs to come to see Clark in a different light and how they can still bring a lot to each other if Raven will just accept <laughs> the fact that Clark isn't necessarily the villain that she sometimes thinks that she is. Um, and so this scene definitely felt necessary. But that said, I am still waiting. for. I don't know if we're ever going to get an apology we're from not. Raven. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not saying we're not. I still think it could be possible. But what I really want is like a moment that Raven is able to recognize Clark, um, that Clark like knows how terrible it feels to be responsible for deaths that she never wanted to cause and that she's received a lot of blame for it, even though she was always, always doing it for the people that she loved. And Raven has known what that's been like before, but the show's retconned it to that now in a very strange way, Raven also feels like she knows 
you know, what that is. And I, I just, I think that Raven really needs to recognize um, that Clark has always done her best and that she doesn't deserve the, like, shit that she gets no, agreed. <laughs> I don't know if it's gonna form formulate into an official apology that's what I'm saying but like, I, I do think there is room in this season for an acknowledgement mm-hmm. yeah agreed yeah um and then let's talk a little bit before we leave this scene about the Nakara karma of it all yeah so Raven mentions that she thinks that her soul is cracked and I think that you know beyond just the like devastation of what that means like in that visual um but it is an interesting point that, you know, the the idea of a soul is very clearly in association with, like, damnation or, you know, heaven or hell and in a very Western sense. And hell is one of the meanings of the idea of Nakara, which is what this planet is called. And according to um, – so, like – looking at the term Nakara, and then we talked a little bit about this in the trailer analysis, Nakara is a Buddhist term that usually refers to – as hell or purgatory in English, Nakara differs from hell in Christianity in two respects. Firstly, beings are not sent to Nakara as the result of divine judgment or punishment. And secondly, the length of being of a being stay in Nakara is not eternal, though it is usually incomprehensibly long from hundreds of millions to sextillions of years. So this idea of like Raven bringing up the idea of like, is this karma? Is this, of, is us dying in this cave, this tunnel cave being slowly digested with acid karma for all of our sins? Um, and again, the idea of like sin and soul being very Western ideas of hell and karma and um, endless torture being a very Eastern philosophy of of the same ilk um, is just really interesting um, and a really nice juxtaposition for what Raven is going through and very apt for this episode. Yeah, I really like that they used Nakara as a metaphor. This whole planet is a metaphor for what Raven's going through right now um, because this planet just feels like the absolute worst. And... Uh, you know, Clark is like the one who's like, you know, I don't believe in karma. I do not believe that this is um, what we're getting because we deserve it. Like, I believe that there's more. I believe our friends will find us. Like, I am not willing to give up here in the same sense that Raven is still trying to figure out where her beliefs are and how she fits now that her um, idea of herself has to change. And so the the use of like karma in this scene and just Nakara as a planet on the whole, um, I think was really effective in just portraying Raven's inner struggle. Yeah, it was. And honestly, like this idea of like physical manifestations of your internal conflict mm-hmm. um, is a really great way of, again, it's really great writing. It's really great storytelling to show how beat up Raven is inside. Yeah, and we we see here at the end of this episode that Raven's able to escape Nakara, um, and she's able to move forward, and I think she has a greater drive and purpose now leaving this episode than she did when she first came into it, and I'm really uh, excited to see how that manifests as we move forward with the season. For sure. So moving on. On Sanctum, Indra's trying to prepare Maddie for talking to one crew, but Maddie panics and runs away. Instead, Murphy and Amori encourage Indra to become the leader herself, and so Indra announces to one crew that she's in command, takes down the annoying knight, and makes an impassioned speech beseeching one crew that if they don't unite, they will be destroyed. Yeah, so before we get into anything here, I just have to say up top, Amori's dress is fucking amazing. All of Amori's dresses are amazing. Holy shit, this dress is awesome. Kaylee had some style. Yeah, Kaylee Prime style icon 
Um, and also before we get too much into this scene, I just wanted to mention briefly, I'm very confused about Jackson in this whole season so yeah. far. Um, it's just kind of like they don't really know what to do with Jackson. So they just kind of throw him in like he's mad about Abby. He's also like taken over a role as like Maddie's protector. Like there's just like a lot of little things that I don't think they're really focusing on any of them enough if they're going to like have a complete arc. I could be... Uh, not necessarily wrong, but this could be something that we're going to like really delve into maybe next episode, maybe in like further episodes down the line. Um, but at this point, I'm still not really sure what Jackson's purpose is right yeah, now. Yeah, it feels very all over the place to me and very f- floppy. Yeah. Um, I agreed. <laughs> um, okay, so <laughs> start. I, mean, I don't want to start talking about Murphy because I just, I love him to pieces in this scene. I love that he's like become everyone's surrogate dad in Bellamy's absence. Like this is very attractive to me gotta say <laughs> yeah you know I'm I feel I find it a little bit odd it doesn't quite vibe with what I know about Murphy but I have heard rumors at not, not necessarily rumors but just theories that um Amori might be pregnant mm. because there was that scene in the last episode was it last yes it was last episode where Amori was like weirdly still affected by the radiation even though they had thought that she'd be over it by then and Jackson kind of brushes it off and the whole thing could have just been to facilitate Murphy having to go in and deal with the the faithful right but that could also have some deeper implication with like maybe Maury has gotten pregnant and that's going to play into you know the greater season and that's why they're having Murphy be so pro kid in these last couple of episodes because they're like really pushing it hard yeah I mean maybe I don't think that Murphy being a fan of kids in general necessarily would have meant or not being a fan of kids in general it would have necessarily meant that he wouldn't have been interested in being a father like no, I that's feel, not what I'm saying no no I know I'm just saying like I don't think they needed to do this in order for like if he was going to become a father I think they could have like handled that just fine but I do think that's interesting and very possible I'm not totally I mean I'm personally not interested in a pregnancy plot but I personally hate it <laughs> yeah, no, I hate I'm not the idea not because I mean like I, I I would love for them someday to have a child and you know to like experience that sort of joy but right now just with Amori never really truly getting her due as a character and then her coming a little bit more into the forefront in this season only for her storyline to be she has a pregnancy would just be really irritating yeah to me. it would be very annoying um and very poor writing for her but I am also feeling like they're, they're not off base. And while I don't think they would have needed to have Murphy suddenly love all kids to, like, have him want to be a father, I am going to admit that these two kind of threads seem to be working very much in coordination yeah, with each other. Yeah, it's hard to deny, but we'll have to watch that. Um, and then I also want to say Murphy has this, like, oh, yes, you can cut me down because that's the only way I'm not letting this kid go in there to Indra. And it's like, that's cute, Murphy. And I know that you're just, like, you know, betting on the fact that Indra isn't going to hurt you. But, like, if Indra wanted, she could wipe the floor with you. With her pinky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with both hands behind her back. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I do I do really love this scene because it shows Murphy and Amori team up in a new and refreshing way counseling Indra and giving her the advice that she's needed to hear all episode and really all seasons thus far and I just watching the two of them work together in these very complementary ways without overshadowing or without relying on one another really working as a team here is 
perfection. Murphy tells Indra, like, that's why that that's why we need you to lead. And then Amori follows up and tells her, like, the fact that you don't want it, it's why you should do it. Um, again, it's just, like, the two of them working on her from both angles. And it's really great. I think it works beautifully. Yeah, you know, we'd mentioned multiple times in the last season – maybe even beyond that, that um, either Indra or Gaia really should be the ones to take over one crew because neither of them want to be the leader. And I think they both have a large claim to um, this group of people. Mm -hmm. And they both also would be great leaders specifically because they didn't want to be leaders. Yes. And so I had been pulling actually for Gaia um, earlier on in this season, but I love that it's ultimately Indra. I mean, Indra is so practical and she is so in tune with these people. Um, And at the same time, I think that maybe there's still that kind of residual grounderness to them where that they would respect Indra more because she's a fighter not that Gaia again we've established I guess that Gaia is like a fighter but like Indra is like a warrior in a way that Gaia isn't you know well I like the idea of it being Indra specifically because Indra is like the paradigm of being a grounder Mm -hmm. like who better to lead the grounders than a real true grounder and like all of the ways that like Clark was an outsider Maddie didn't grow up with them she grew up with Clark Mm mm-hmm Gaia was a very specific sect of being a grounder in, in the religious sense and yeah. like is not fully in tune with like the rest of grounder culture um, and is often like very much at odds with a lot of their ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, but Indra is the epitome of grounderness. So like mm-hmm. who better to lead them than her? Like, Absolutely. She is the perfect person to do this. The only reason she didn't do it before is because she didn't think she could. Yeah. I do love that Indra says, I'm a soldier, a warrior. And that really calls back to Octavia um, back in season five when I think Jaha was like trying to give her a pep talk about how she needed to like take control of the bunker. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think a, in a lot of ways, Octavia learned this mindset from Indra because, yeah. you know, Indra was her seda. Um, and so like that idea that like you can't be a warrior and also be a leader um, was something that was both instilled into Octavia and is something that probably was instilled into Indra as well. Yeah. And with Octavia, it's a little bit murkier because that was a strange situation overall. And I think Octavia was not ready for the responsibility and also was just up against a lot uh, that honestly any leader would have been, you know, it would have been really hard to deal with. Sure. But um, with Indra, I think now is the time, you know, (laughs) she will be a great leader. We already know this in the same way that I have faith now that Octavia would be a really great leader moving forward. Yeah. Agreed. They're, they've both evolved so much, Mm -hmm. um, and have learned from each other too. Yeah. Yeah. And then of course there is Indra letting go of the commander's gear and like saying to, to Murphy, get rid of it. Um, which just feels super meta I think it's the shows and the writers clear way of like acknowledging the fact that a lot of people um were upset with the cultural appropriative idea of the gear yeah and that they're saying like okay we're gonna still kind of have this like one crew group but we're going to like get rid of this specific symbol and we're going to like change what this group looks like overall yeah um and I think that was really effective and I (laughs) we saw the gear where she was gonna put it on Maddie I was like oh my god did they really bring it back again (laughs) yeah I know and then they basically flicked it away yeah (laughs) So now I'm pretty sure that's gone forever. Yeah, no, it's gone. It's very much gone. Um, I love when Indra tells M- Murphy and Amori, like, no, you can't watch. This is for one crew. Like, you guys weren't in the bunker, blah, blah, blah. And then Murphy is like, I'm going to watch anyway. I'm going to watch. <laughs> and Amori was, like, waiting for it. She's yep. like, yeah, yeah, we yeah, are. Yeah. We're going to go watch. 
This is going to, like, it's the sight not to be missed. Yeah. So, this oh scene. Oh, my God. It was so good. Like, every single thing Indra says, she, like, comes in and she's like, look, there are no more commanders, but make no mistake, I am in command. And that so much calls back to one of my favorite Clark lines back in season two where she said to her mom, I may not be the chancellor, but I'm in charge. And it was, like, one of the biggest badass moments of the oh, show. Oh, yeah. It was a huge mic drop. And so, like, this felt, like, so similar to that. And Indra was there for that moment. She was, like, standing right behind Clark. So I think that, you know, she kind of, like, yeah. picked up a little yeah. inspiration there. <laughs> it was excellent. I mean, like, what a powerful line. Yeah. I, I, I just, like, this whole scene is, is so satisfying. Um, but especially, I loved seeing Indra, like, take Knight down. Because he's been super annoying these past few episodes. Yeah. And I'm just not here for he's him. He's been, like, a fly that she, like, refuses to swat. Mm-hmm. And finally just, like, shut it down. And it's been, it, like, shows that, like, I have been tolerating you. Yeah. You know, like, you have been enjoying the privilege of my tolerance <laughs> when I easily could have wiped the floor with your face. Yeah. At any moment. I was practicing restraint, and you should appreciate it. <laughs> but since you're not, I guess I'm going to take you down. I will kill you. <laughs> no, she didn't kill him, but still. Um, and then we get this, like, wonderful speech in Tregetislang, which mm-hmm. was perfect, uh, which was essentially kind of a, we have to live together, we have to unite, or we're all going to die alone. She says, we rose from the ashes of the bunker and flew across the stars to find a new home. And, like, that that whole idea of, like, everything that the Grounders have been through, not just in our show, but honestly, like, since the first apocalypse, like, they've truly fought so hard to like survive and to get where they are now and the like idea that they're going to splinter now and that like it's all going to be for naught is something that Indra is not willing to accept no for sure and it's so funny because this was like almost identical to what I said in our last podcast where I was like oh my god look think of like how much you guys have been through and you're still fighting like (laughs) this is ridiculous and it just needed somebody one of their own to really call them out on their shit like Mm -hmm. we have to be better um and then she's like we are one crew like this we're not fighting anymore like no. that's bullshit we are one people and we're done with all of this crap <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then you know she she goes on and tells night she's like i'm not asking you know and it's like she's really embracing her position and shows like she's got the instincts to do this she knows how to be a leader she actually puts night in charge of you know getting back their guns which is like not only am i going to put you in your place but like clearly like you are you need a job yeah you are causing trouble like (laughs) you are bored I will give you work to do Mm -hmm. no she's delegating which I really love Intra's always been great at delegating she is she's awesome at it and then at the very end um it's like a blink and you miss it but there's like Murphy has like a little fingertip applause as Indra like walks out of the room and it's just like it's the best Murphy (laughs) Murphy's so funny So, almost done here. Dioza's group heads to the surface on Bardo, but Gabriel doesn't trust Levitt and worries that they'll die if they follow his plan. Instead, Gabriel knocks out his whole group and surrenders to the Bardoans slash disciples. And on Nakara, Raven and the group finally reach the Anomaly Stone and manage to make their way off the planet and presumably on their way to Bardo. Yes, so we see another poor Bardoan disciple die. There's a lot of collateral damage in this episode. Yeah, this was really sad because he was just like an old man. He was seemed like, like he was gardening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was this poor guy who was like, it's not survivable. <laughs> and what's sad is like they probably wouldn't have had to kill him, but Octavia is the one who messed up and she recognized that. Like yeah. she said Levitt's name and that's why, why? Echo killed yeah. this man. Yeah. 
Um, which Although sucks. Echo did not hesitate. No, I mean, as we said, Echo's running on autopilot in so many ways. Like she's just very goal oriented right now, and her goal is must get off this planet. I cannot process anything else but that one goal. Yeah, no, I mean, she's like so off, you know, off her normal game. Like even before Gabriel tases them, like Echo is not a fan of his and basically like throws him under the bus, like telling the group that he only cares about his answers and the science, which just feels like particularly cold after living and growing close with someone for five years on Skyring. Sure. I mean, I mean, it's cold because Echo is lashing out at people for sure Um, because she's not processing any of her emotions. It's turning into anger and rage. Um, And I, I definitely think that we're going to have to see her process those emotions Throughout the season, before she finds out that Bellamy's alive again, she really has to go through this. Oh, for sure. Um, but I, I agree with you that I, I really just wish, and this is, I'm talking more in like a larger sense, that we got a better look at how Hope, Gabriel, and Echo had become a family unit because I think that they had, and it's not the same as Hope, Echo, and or Hope, Dioza, and Octavia, mm-hmm. but you could still have a really close relationship and, you know, be like friends um, in a way that they're not all acting like they are. Right. I mean, it just lays a lot of disconnect. Yeah. And I mean, like Gabriel, <laughs> what, what's funny about Gabriel here is he says that he just wants to live and it's um, quite the turnaround from last season. Yes, it is. When he definitely didn't want to live, like he wanted to finally die and like people wouldn't let him. <laughs> but I think Gabriel's, found more to live for now um there's a mystery that needs solving and gabriel i mean like echo isn't wrong gabriel does care very deeply about like finding out the truth behind all of this you know yeah but i think that it's like oversimplifying because i think he does care about them and he's worried about their safety oh, too which she's disqualified of course. So, 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 i'm yeah. saying like echo's not wrong in the sense that gabriel does care deeply about his answers of course, at the same time, I believe he cares about or cares about the rest of the group. Yeah, and I do think it's it's interesting that like not only is there like a mystery to live for, but I think it's just reinforced this idea with him that like there are things to discover, there are things to there are ways to find joy in life. Like it's not over yet. Yeah. Um, there are new things, new different different kinds of discoveries, whether scientific or not, that can just bring you joy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's. I think growth for him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I just want Gabriel to like live his best life. You know, he had, he might not have always been the best person, but I think that he's truly tried to change. Yeah. And I respect that. Overall net positive for Gabriel. Well, well, I don't, I'm not sure everything that he's done. I don't know if he'd be net positive, but he's working toward being better. And that's what is important for all of the characters on the show, you know? For sure. That's kind of the whole spiel of the the show. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It's to be better, as Monty would say. Um, we see Gabriel here make a really calculated decision, though. Oh, boy. It, it's um, it's definitely a, a leap. Uh, a, a, faith. Sh- a shocker, would you say? It is a shocker, but, I mean, it's also just him choosing to hope that the disciples are going to be uh, a better option for them than the service. Did you not get my joke? What, did, what was what? A shocker. <laughs> Were they shocked? He is that tased the- them. I didn't, like consider that tasing I guess maybe it was he like electrified their suits and like knocked them out yeah I guess I guess that's true I guess technically would be like a shocker but how dare you miss my pun (laughs) I'm so sorry you don't always acknowledge my puns so I feel like I have to call them out so I think it's only fair that you have to call yours out fine but I thought that was a really good one (laughs) um 
but I am wondering how this whole thing is going to play out. And I personally think that Gabriel's probably in the right here, um, specifically because I'm not sure if we should trust Levitt, specifically because Bellamy or because Octavia does trust Levitt, you know, like it's like this whole. Well, and even more than that, it's like, again, like what's the game plan once you reach the surface? Like, you know that it's going to eventually exactly. kill you. That's what so I was like, saying. So like, you know, I think you need to find a different out. And uh, Levitt had earlier said that there were, like, 12 disciples in the stone room that would suicide. I think that that's the bomb thing. Yeah. If uh, It's a suicide to keep them from, like, leaving the planet. But I'm like, mm, I still feel – I really believe that these this people could have taken them out. You know, Dioza could take on, like, six or seven herself. Octavia, probably the same. Yeah. Echo, probably the same. Yeah. Hope, probably the same. I don't know what Gabriel can do now, but I'm sure after trading for five years, he's also pretty good. He can do something. <laughs> yeah, I agree. 12 didn't seem like that big of a number. <laughs> Um, okay, let's switch gears here and talk about this last little bit on Nakara. Um, we can see that now, as you said, Raven has a new reinvigorated uh, perspective on getting off planet and getting to the right one. I think with, you know, all of the emotional baggage finally, maybe not fully processed, but at least tempered after her conversation with Clark, she can really start making calculated and smart decisions again um, and, like, put her whole weight behind being the sort of navigator of their group mm -hmm. and is determined to get them to not just any planet but the right planet this time so no more guesswork is involved true and I still say that you truly picked the planet that looked the least fun so. yeah but I think I mean like now in retrospect like you can tell like she was off like she wasn't yeah. fully being Raven yeah and like Raven in her in her best Ravenness would never have settled for that mm-hmm and so that was a character choice, and I like it. I agree. I agree with you. Um, and it does seem like Raven's kind of, like, back on track a little yeah. bit. Um, and then here at the very end of this episode, we get the confirmation that there is some sort of connection between Second Dawn and the Bardoans slash Disciples, which, honestly, I was a little surprised to realize that we hadn't had confirmed yet because, like, everyone just knows at this point, you know? Yeah. Like, the whole fandom is aware. Yeah, so, no, like, it just wasn't acknowledged in the show. Exactly. This confirmation was kind of like, yeah, and? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I guess they don't know that yet. But I'm so happy for you. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, it, it was a long time coming, but, but I like, accept the accolades. I'm not the only person who had these theories, so, like, all of us can share the trophies that are to come. But, like, <laughs> look at you being, like, Clark having the optimism that someday <laughs> it will happen someday my cat again will come yes <laughs> it's here um and then Miller's like it's gotta be a coincidence right and I'm like son <laughs> no it's not it really isn't it's not a coincidence <laughs> do you Miller. not know what show but you're like, on also Miller is like quickly becoming another like surrogate character uh, avatar of me <laughs> <laughs> Miller and I have a lot in common in this episode <laughs> I'm alls too. Like, what is this second dawn? What? What is it? <laughs> also, I hate this planet. I hate this planet. Have we mentioned how much I hate this planet? I hate this planet. Um, and also Clark being the um regular badass that she is, tells everybody that she doesn't know uh she doesn't know what's waiting for them on the other side, so weapons hot. It's like I mean that's a Bellamy line, so she got that from Bellamy. Ah, uh, so good, even better. We didn't, you know, get any acknowledgement, but at least we see a little bit of Bellark here. <laughs> oh, God. 
All and right. that's the episode. Yeah, so let's get into some of our discussion points. Um, the title meaning in the episode, it's called Nakara. Um, so that's a really complicated one. They're on, Hard to figure they're out. They're on the planet Nakara. Um, also, obviously, there is a lot of like huge references to the Nakara symbolism we discussed earlier with the idea of hell and purgatory. And I also just want to interstate or interject again. Yeah. We are not Buddhists. This is all learned from a Wikipedia search. If we are wrong, I would love to get emails or tweets from you guys um, explaining this more in depth. Because, again, we are just coming from a very basic level of knowledge. We're skimming the top. <laughs> like, doing as much diligence as we can with Karu. Yeah. Um, but seriously, like, we always really value your feedback. And we value when you tell us if we're wrong. So, please, we welcome it. Um, but, yeah, there is... Obviously, all this symbolism at play and a, and a metaphor for the turmoil and purgatory that Raven is experiencing inside um, that is manifesting outside on the planet. Uh, what was your favorite line? My favorite line, and this was a hard one because there were so many good lines in this episode, I feel. Um, it's either always like there aren't any good lines and I have to really scramble for it or there's like 20 good lines. I know. This one was like a an embarrassment of riches. Yeah. Um, but my favorite line has to be, there may be no more commanders, but make no mistake, I am in command. <laughs> yeah, that was a mic drop. It was a mic drop. It was amazing. <laughs> What's um, yours? My favorite line was when Amori told Indra, um, the fact that you don't want it, it's why you should do it. Which is like something that I, you know, it's very reminiscent of a Harry Potter line that Dumbledore says to Harry. And it's something that I have really thought about a lot, you know, in you know, consuming media and, and looking at the world and everything. And I just like, it's so true. Um, and it's just, I love seeing characters who find leadership really suits them, even though they'd never had the ambitions mm-hmm. to be a leader themselves. Absolutely. It's just a very satisfying um, trope. And I love it. I'm curious if we're going to see the same sort of arc for Amori uh, oh, this yeah, season maybe. with her kind of taking on Kaylee's role. And I'm still not sure where that's going to go but it does seem like next episode that's going to come to a head in some way so yeah um yeah (laughs) what was your favorite scene my favorite scene and again this was really hard and as I was watching the episode um the Raven and Clark scene I think I said like this is my favorite scene but then little did I know we have the Indra scene to come and so like it was it was a hard decision but the scene where Indra finally takes control of one crew was just so cathartic and I loved it and it's my favorite scene yeah I too had a very hard time picking this I think ultimately I went with the scene between Indra Amori and Murphy um as they finally get her to understand how good of a leader she has the potential to be Mm -hmm. that was the emotional like crux of the episode that worked the most for me with that said I also would pick um when Octavia and Dioza and Hope are reunited. Yeah. That was my like top pick until the very end of the episode when the Murphy and Amori stuff happened. And then I was like, oh, this just like edges it out just like a teeny tiny bit. And I won't lie too. I loved the love Tavia scene. Whatever. Oh my God. It was so Whatever good. ends up happening with that. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. It was great. <laughs> So the next episode is 707, The Queen's Gambit. In this episode, Amori tries to heal Sanctum's old familial familial wounds, while Echo, Octavia, and Dioza struggle with new ones. Mm-hmm. So before we kind of head off of that, I just wanted to mention one more time that The Queen's Gambit is a move in chess that's all about sacrificing a pawn now in order to re- achieve a greater victory later. 
And so I'm definitely worried what's going to need to be sacrificed next episode. Yeah. And who's what doing, or who? And who's doing the sacrificing? Who's doing the sacrificing? Who's being sacrificed? Yeah. And also <laughs> something that I thought is interesting too is like the character Knight is an, is called Knight. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that has something to do with chess. I didn't even pick that up, but that's a really good uh, call. Yeah. And I mean, we also see in this episode that Shade Russell, I mean, again, he, we, we've seen him many times loving chess, but like he was very concerned with like that queen chess piece this episode. Yep. Um, and having that scene kind of leading into this next episode, the Queen's Gambit was just, it's, it's really gearing me up. I'm yeah. excited. Yeah. There's a lot of really good thematic stuff happening here. <laughs> and I mean, like, I, I just feel like we're finally starting to get more into the meat of this season. Um, those first few episodes were rough, but like the last few really like four onward, I've really enjoyed all of them. Yeah, I agree. So fingers crossed that we have another great episode to come. Me too. All right, guys, that's our episode. If you'd like to contact us, you can. You can email us at skycastcrew at gmail.com. That's S-K-A-I-C-A-S-T-K-R-U at gmail.com. You can also tweet at us at skycast, and you can tweet at us at our own Twitter accounts. I am at bperlman89. And I'm at Sarah R. McCabe. And that is our episode. So until next time, may we meet again. May we meet again, guys. Bye. Bye.